As Dr. Kaiser just explained, it's the long-standing custom of the college for the opening lecture of the academic year to be given on a topic concerning liberal education in general and to be given by a member of our teaching faculty. Um, on our California campus, this year's opening lecture will be given by Dr. Tony Andres, a uh, good friend, and on this campus, it's going to be given right now by me. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Michael Agros. I was just mentioned briefly there by Dr. Kaiser, and I'm a tutor here. Uh, I have a son, Ben, in the junior class, and a beautiful wife, Amy, who works in HR, and also serves in certain unofficial capacities on this campus, as I'm sure you'll discover. Um, but I'm not going to waste time. I'm going to get down to business here. Okay. So my talk tonight is dedicated to Miss Redford, my first semester ninth grade geometry teacher who gave me an A. <laughs> uh, it is not dedicated to Mr. Filio, my second semester ninth grade geometry teacher who gave me a D plus. <laughs> okay, so, uh, our college offers no education other than a liberal one. Some who are aware of that fact are surprised, even horrified, to learn that we include four years of mathematics in our program. Why, they wonder, should liberal education include mathematics at all, let alone four years of it? Isn't liberal education restricted to those disciplines known as the humanities, which by definition and by the goodness of God, do not include mathematics and science? Shouldn't liberal education confine itself to history, literature, philosophy, and the like? Well, the truth is that mathematics is an integral part of liberal education. And that's kind of my thesis, basically, for this evening. By an integral part, I mean not merely a component, like a brick in a brick wall, but a part that, like an organ of an animal, is specially adapted to all the other components, so as to serve them or be served by them for the good of the whole. Mathematics belongs in liberal education, first of all, because it's itself a liberal discipline, and so it, it's indeed a component of liberal education. But more than that, it also serves all superior components of liberal learning, namely natural science, philosophy, and sacred theology. There you have my enunciation, you might say, using Euclidean language. I'm now obliged to supply a proof of it. Since my enunciation has two parts, my talk will fall into two corresponding parts. The first will show deductively that mathematics is itself a liberal discipline. The second will show inductively that mathematics in various ways serves the liberal discipline superior to itself and thus serves liberal education as a whole. On then to deducing that math is itself a liberal discipline, hence a natural component of liberal education. To see why mathematics is a liberal discipline, one must know what mathematics is and what a liberal art or science is. And we're not going to need an exact definition of mathematics in order to reach our conclusion. Everybody's rough and ready notion of what mathematics is should suffice. It's enough if we recognize geometry and number theory as examples of pure mathematics. And if we recognize other mathematical disciplines as well that apply mathematics in some way, such as astronomy, modern physics, and the mathematical analysis of music. We could spend a lot of time talking about what an art is and what a science is, but a general understanding of these two is sufficiently accurate for my purposes. An art, let us say, is a reasoned knowledge of how to achieve or make some particular human good. And a science is an ordered body of sure conclusions about some special subject matter. Good enough. I cannot so easily get away with calling some arts and sciences liberal without explanation. Our word liberal is from the Latin liberalis, itself from liber, meaning free. And what does it mean to be free? Those who are free can be identified by contrast with those who are not free, namely prisoners and slaves. Prisoners and slaves live a certain way not because it is somehow naturally fulfilling for them to live that way, but because someone else forces them to live that way in order to serve or preserve a desirable way of life for others. They themselves are not permitted to share in the desirable way of life that they are made to serve. Now, an education might help somebody get out of prison on good behavior or to reintegrate into society after being let out. 
or an education could help somebody escape or avoid the slavery of a sweatshop. But an education is called liberal not because it frees us from such institutional forms of slavery or imprisonment, but because it helps free us from the sort of slavery and imprisonment that are natural to all mankind. Here's what I mean. Like slaves or prisoners who are in a special condition preventing them from living as they're naturally inclined to live, we all find ourselves born in a common condition preventing us from living as we are naturally inclined to live. All of us by nature desire to be good and happy human beings, yet we're born with a certain tendency to vice and to the misery it brings, and born also in ignorance, both of what our goodness and happiness consist in and also of how to achieve them. And there is more. All of us by nature desire to know, to grasp the whole world around us within our souls, to be able to contemplate it whenever we wish, rather than to be stuck with dark and empty minds like prison cells without windows. And yet we're born in total ignorance of the world. And when we try to understand it, we find ourselves more prone to error and mental paralysis than to easy and error-free discovery of truth. In short, we desire to be free from ignorance, error, vice, and misery, but find these evils come far more easily to us than their opposites. An education in which we learn truths we naturally desire to understand liberates us from ignorance and error concerning such truths, and for that reason is called a liberal education. Learning truths we must understand in order to become happy and good also deserves to be called a liberal education, though for a somewhat different reason. A knowledge of the right way to live sets us free from a paralyzing ignorance in which we cannot wisely direct ourselves in our own actions, leaving us condemned to a trial and error approach to human living, a way of life involving lots of trials and lots of painful errors. A complete liberal education therefore has two principal parts. The first is called theoretical or speculative philosophy. This part frees us from ignorance and error concerning truths we naturally desire to know for their own sake. It's called theoretical or speculative, not in the sense that it's uncertain and susceptible to being wrong. That would hardly liberate us from ignorance and error. But in the sense that it does not direct human action, but simply looks at truth worth seeing. Hence the words theoretical and speculative come respectively from the Greek and Latin words for looking. This part of education is called liberal then because it frees us from ignorance and error regarding things our minds naturally desire to look at and to see. Such an education is sufficient by itself to liberate our minds in that particular sense. The second principal part of liberal education is called practical philosophy or else moral or political philosophy. This part frees us from ignorance of the way to live in order to become good and happy human beings. It is called liberal because it frees us from the inability to direct ourselves toward and within a life worth living by freeing us from the ignorance and error that can trap us in vice and misery. Such an education is sufficient to free us from that ignorance. It's also called liberal because in freeing us from certain things that lead to vice and misery and in equipping us with knowledge that can help us direct ourselves to virtue and happiness, it can be said to some extent to free us from vice and misery themselves. This, however, it cannot do all by itself. We also need grace and many other things in order to rise up out of vice and misery. Education is not sufficient for that. Those things, however, are goods outside of education. Of all the types of education that exist, moral and political education alone deserve to be called liberal on the grounds that the knowledge it imparts of itself helps free us from vice and the misery that accompanies it. Here I might mention sacred theology. Does that fall in the theoretical part or the practical part of liberal education? Well, actually it contains both theoretical and practical truth. As you will learn in your junior theology class here, theology is the only science that is formally both theoretical and practical. Consequently, it's liberating both in the sense that it frees us from ignorance of things we naturally desire to know and in the sense that it frees us from the inability to direct our action to what is good and what will make us truly blessed. 
Note that the two principal parts of a liberal education are called free or liberal in distinct senses then. The theoretical part of liberal education is called free because like the life of someone who is free and is not a slave or prisoner, it's worthwhile in itself, not just for some other intellectual life or some other human good that it serves or makes possible. The moral part of liberal education, however, is called free because, like someone who is free and is not a slave or prisoner, it's self-directive. All other practical sciences, in order to be rightly used, must be used in accord with rules determined by moral and political science. Since it does not pertain to the military or medical arts and sciences, for example, to say in what their right use consists. By contrast, moral and political philosophy and moral theology are not subordinated to any higher science telling them what they ought to do or what their right use consists in, since there is no science that makes a more universal consideration of the good for man than these sciences do, or which considers a greater and more ultimate good for man. Hence, those who govern a city or nation are not meant to be experts in carpentry, or medicine, or even in the military arts. But instead, they're supposed to be wise in how to use these arts for the good of the whole city or nation toward its justice and happiness. Accordingly, political philosophy and prudence are called master arts, or architectonic, in relation to all the other arts and practical sciences. Now, if what I've said so far were the whole story, liberal education would simply be an education in theoretical and political philosophy and in sacred theology. And that is very close to being true, since those are the principal parts of liberal education. But those disciplines are so astonishingly difficult for the human mind to learn that it cannot leap straight into them. Certain preparatory disciplines must be learned first as a way into liberal education. These preparatory disciplines are readily accessible to those beginning a liberal education. One reason for their accessibility is just the fact that they're all arts. Arts deal with what we do or make by some plan we have in mind, and such things we know best. Besides being accessible to us, the preparatory arts I'm describing also provide certain inroads into the principal and more difficult parts of liberal education by equipping us with the general tools and methods we need in those sciences. Logic, for example, teaches us the right way to make definitions, statements, arguments, and the like, which are the very stuff of philosophy. Now, these preparatory arts are also called liberal but for two other reasons, different from, though related to, the reasons why the parts of philosophy are called liberal. First, these preparatory arts are called liberal because they exist for the sake of serving knowledge that is liberal in one of the ways I've already explained. Now that might sound odd at first. How can something be called liberal, that is, free, by reason of the fact that it serves something else? That makes it sound servile, not free. But consider, the king is royal in the first sense of royal. He is his royal highness. But his carriage is called the royal carriage, and his guard the royal guard. These are royal not in the sense that they are kingly in themselves, but in the sense that they're dedicated specifically to the purpose of serving the king. So, in the same sort of way, the liberal arts in general are not all liberal in the chief sense of being some part of theoretical or practical philosophy, but they are all liberal, at least in the sense that they are dedicated specifically to the purpose of serving and leading to such liberal knowledge. Moreover, the manner in which they serve those higher disciplines presents another reason why they deserve to be called liberal. The products of these preparatory arts are made immediately by the soul, within the soul, and for the soul. As, to, as opposed to an art such as carpentry, whose, product, uh, whose products are formed immediately by the hands and tools of the carpenter, and in a physical material, namely wood, and in answer to a need of the human body, such as shelter. In contrast to that, consider the art of logic. Although it makes arguments out of words, which are vocal sounds outside the soul, it assembles these only for the sake of a further product, namely a corresponding assembly of thoughts in the mind. If an assembly of spoken words could not produce a corresponding assembly of thoughts within the mind, the logician would have no interest in words. 
The logician's work thus serves a need of the mind or soul, not a need of the body. Now, the soul is the part of man by which he is free. By having a mortal body, man is in many ways enslaved, burdened with needs, subject to sickness and death. Socrates compared the human body to a prison in which the soul is trapped. Now, that's not the whole truth about the relationship between body and soul, but it's an important part of the truth, and it gets truer and more important the older you get. <laughs> An art that produces its works by means of manual labor, incorporeal materials, all in order to serve a need of the body, may be a very necessary art indeed. But it should be called a manual art, or an art in the service of necessity, not a liberal one. An art such as logic, whose products are made immediately by the soul, within the soul, and for the good of the soul, deserves to be called liberal, since its work is made by, is made within, and is made for the part of man by which he is free. Certain arts, therefore, are called liberal, at least for these two reasons. One, they are preparatory for higher liberal studies, and two, their works are within the soul. Logic in particular is perhaps called liberal for an additional reason. Like the one who is free, it is to some extent self-directive. It sort of bosses around some of the other sciences, you might say. It gives directions to them regarding the general rules about making distinctions, definitions, arguments, and the like, because all of the sciences have to do that, and they have to obey the logician. And when making these things itself, it does not follow orders from others. It simply applies its own rules. Okay, it's self-directive, free. With all these things before our minds, we are now ready to see that mathematics is a natural part of liberal education. The reason is that mathematics is both a theoretical science and a liberal art. That mathematics is a science is clear enough. As anyone, who know, anyone knows who studied a little mathematics, it's an orderly, sure, and reasoned understanding of necessarily true conclusions about a certain subject matter. The purely mathematical disciplines, such as geometry and arithmetic, are a perfectly sure knowledge, since they deduce their conclusions from necessarily and self-evidently true first premises. The applied mathematical disciplines, such as modern astronomy and physics, though less certain than pure mathematics, attain a certainty of a sort and they are a knowledge of conclusions in the sense that they confirm hypotheses about nature by putting them to the test of experience. So these mathematical disciplines are all sciences. What's less evident is that mathematical sciences are theoretical in nature and therefore liberal. What's most known about mathematics to those little acquainted with it is that it's extremely useful. Though that is true, the practical use of mathematics is only an application of it to something outside it, not what mathematics itself is about. The Pythagorean theorem is very useful for squaring up a deck that I'm building, but it is not inherently about squaring up decks. In fact, the demonstration of the Pythagorean theorem is extremely useless for that purpose. It's only the conclusion that matters, and even then, the universality of the conclusion is unimportant. It's good enough for a carpenter if a 3-4-5 triangle must be right. He need not know that every triangle whose longest side is equal in square to the sum of squares on its other sides must be right. If mathematics were essentially about its practical applications, it would not be much interested in proofs or even in the universality of its statements. Mathematics, then, is inherently theoretical. Although it's in some sense about an order produced by reason, such as the order of steps in constructing a figure, or in carrying out an algorithm to find a number of some given description, it's chiefly about relationships that human reason does not make, but only discovers and understands. The relationship of equality between the square on the hypotenuse and the sum of the squares on the remaining sides of a right triangle, for example, is not a relationship the human mind establishes but only finds. Geometry, therefore, and mathematics generally is a theoretical, not a practical science. The order it aims to reveal is not produced by the human mind, but is intelligible, and knowing that order perfects the human mind, 
And so that order must, in fact, be the reflection of a mind superior to the human mind. And for that reason, mathematics is theoretical and can even, to some extent, be called a certain philosophy. Aristotle calls it that. Any science that studies certain universal principles of the good and the beautiful, as indeed mathematics does, is in fact a kind of wisdom. Mathematics, therefore, is a theoretical science, even a theoretical philosophy, and is in that sense liberal. Note that mathematical science is liberal in the sense that it is theoretical in its subject matter, not merely like logic in the sense that its products are incorporated into some other theoretical knowledge. Hence, mathematics is actually more liberal than logic, since it's a liberal science, whereas logic is not a liberal science. That is, it's not a theoretical science. It's only a liberal art. It's a science, too, just not a liberal one. It's an operative one, you might say. Okay, logic is also called a speculative art, though not because it's about truths in themselves worth knowing, but because its end is to serve knowledge itself and not something else beyond knowledge. Very well. Mathematics is a theoretical science, and so it's part of a complete liberal education. Not that anyone ever offers a thoroughly complete liberal education. Um, but is mathematics also a liberal art? Certainly. It teaches us how to make certain things, how to make equilateral triangles, for example, and squares and perfect solids. It also teaches us how to find certain things, such as the center of a circle or the least numbers in given ratios. And so it is an art. And moreover, it's a liberal one, since its products are not made of sensible materials, like cardboard or plastic or wood, but remain within the mind of the mathematician. And they are made not to serve the needs of the body, but to be subjects of theoretical understanding. Things assembled by the logician, such as definitions and arguments, are only instruments of theoretical knowledge in other sciences. Things like arguments that he teaches us how to make. Things constructed by the mathematician, however, are subjects of theoretical knowledge within mathematics itself. Mathematics is therefore more liberal than logic even as an art. Geometry constructs the five perfect solids, for example, and these are the subject of geometry's own theoretical knowledge of them. Probably it's only the most elementary parts of mathematics that should be called liberal arts, since that phrase implies something easily learned by beginners, which is not itself a higher study, but is only preparatory for higher studies. Einstein's theory of relativity is mathematical, is art, and is science but it is not right to think of it as an easy introduction to the life of the mind for beginners. It's truer to think of it as a mathematical part of the philosophy of nature, I think. It should now be clear that mathematics is a natural part of a complete liberal education. So here's the reasoning sort of summing up. Mathematics is both a liberal, art, a liberal science and a liberal art. Any liberal science or liberal art is a part of a complete liberal education. Therefore, mathematics is a, a part of a complete liberal education. It belongs. In this way, one sees that mathematics rightfully holds some place in liberal education. But that's not enough to show that it should be studied at any significant length or that it should be learned in the beginning of a liberal education. That mathematics deserves to be learned throughout an undergraduate formation in liberal arts and sciences, or why it should be, should become clear once we see that elementary mathematical disciplines serve all the higher liberal sciences in various ways. Now that comes to the second part of my thesis, or my enunciation, and so we move on now to the second inductive part of the talk. Liberal education is not identical with education in the liberal arts. It's extremely important. Most people don't know that. <laughs> liberal education is not identical with education in the liberal arts for two reasons. First, because the expression liberal arts refers only to introductory disciplines or introductory parts of them. Hence, there are many arts that are liberal, yet are not liberal arts in that restrictive sense. Abstract algebra, also known as Galois theory, which I tried to study last year and failed, for example, might be termed an art. And it's liberal in the sense that it's a knowledge theoretical in nature, but it cannot be called a liberal art in the sense of being an introductory discipline that can and must be learned before going on to the higher parts of philosophy. 
It's far too advanced to be considered introductory or elementary for an undergraduate education in liberal studies as a whole, and it's not needed in order to understand, say, metaphysics or theology. A second reason why liberal education is not identical with learning the liberal arts is that the most liberal of all knowledge is not an art at all, since it's in no way a knowledge of something made by reason. The knowledge of the Trinity imparted in theology, for example, is not a knowledge of anything made by reason, but a knowledge of something by which human reason was made. And so Trinit Trinitarian theology is not an art. So too, what Aristotle calls first philosophy, which is a philosophical knowledge of God and of the universe as coming forth from God and existing for God, is not an art, since it's not about things made by reason. Nor is natural philosophy about things made by reason. Big surprise, it's about things made by nature. These most liberal disciplines are not arts at all, but only sciences, hence they can't be called liberal arts. Nonetheless, liberal education consists in the teaching and learning of them most of all, since they're the most liberal disciplines. An undergraduate liberal education, however, spends much of its time in the lower liberal disciplines, called the liberal arts, because these preparatory arts are much easier to learn for beginners, and they provide a great deal of assistance in the learning and teaching of the higher liberal disciplines. The various liberal disciplines, then, are not like so many animals in a zoo, things of the same general kind, all living in the same institution, but not having much more than that to do with each other, no. Instead, the liberal arts and sciences form a wonderfully unified and orderly whole. Not one whole science, not one whole art, but one whole education, one complete intellectual life for man. And there's a natural order in which they should be learned, the earlier ones being in various ways necessary for the learning of the later ones. In particular, the four so-called quadrivial arts, namely geometry, arithmetic, astronomy, and music, must be learned prior to the higher sciences of natural philosophy, first philosophy, and sacred theology and ethics. These mathematical liberal arts pave the way for the mind to enter into those higher sciences in two different ways. In one way, they provide intellectual prerequisites, things that must be understood before one is ready to go on to the higher parts of philosophy. In another way, they foster and strengthen, dis they strengthen dispositions of will and emotion necessary for making a good beginning in the principal liberal disciplines. You could say there are cognitive prerequisites and appetitive prerequisites that, they that the, the quadrivial arts support and serve. The remainder of my talk will be devoted to explaining these two ways in which the quadrivial arts contribute to the learning of philosophy and theology. The noblest, wisest, and most liberal of all sciences is sacred theology, which proceeds in light of divine revelation rather than in the light of reason. Because the divine light is so bright, however, for us it's a bit like staring at the sun or at objects too brightly lit by the sun for us to see very well. We need the assistance of a dimmer light more suited to our mind's capacity in order for divine truths to become as accessible to us as possible. The learning and teaching of theology thus relies on assistance from lower sciences that proceed in the light of reason. For that purpose, theology mainly employs the highest of the human sciences, since those bear most on the subjects of theology. Theology makes relatively little direct use of the quadrivial arts, but one can hardly find a page of St. Thomas's Summa Theologiae without finding there some use of ethics or political philosophy or the philosophy of nature or metaphysics. We must therefore learn a good deal of philosophy before going on to theology, at least St. Thomas style. But even though these philosophical sciences proceed in the light of reason, they're still quite difficult for us as well. They're at the summit of what the light of reason can achieve. The philosophy of nature, for example, is difficult in part because it's about things almost too dim to see, things whose being and intelligibility is tenuous or impoverished, such as motion, change, time, matter, and the like. And so reason must shine rather brightly to illuminate these things. 
First philosophy, or metaphysics, is even more difficult for us to learn because it's about things too bright for us to see very well, such as the immaterial intelligences and God, and the highest universals, such as being, unity, truth, goodness, and so on. None of these things is sensible or imaginable, and so they're not very close to our human mode of knowing. Practical philosophy presents its own challenges, since even our bad desires can get in the way of understanding its principles and conclusions, and since it concerns human affairs, which are extremely variable, and habits, which take a long time to develop and to manifest their consequences. The profitable learning of ethics therefore requires a long experience of life, which young undergraduates must lack to one degree or another. Moreover, the kind of certainty attainable about moral matters is quite different from that to be expected in other sciences. And the great differences between one human being and the next, as opposed to one monkey and the next, can make it seem as though there is no objective order in the moral realm. So we seem to be in a quandary. Prior to learning theology, we have to learn the philosophical disciplines. But it doesn't seem possible for the human mind simply to begin with them either, since they're so difficult what to do? Well, the solution is to begin by learning sciences that in some sense cover the same subject matters as these higher parts of philosophy, but that do so in a manner more accessible to our minds. In first philosophy, one studies God and the order of the whole universe toward God in light of his causing all existence and in light of how one good serves a higher good. In natural philosophy, one studies the universal cause of all change and the inclinations of all natures toward what's good for themselves and for the universe. The human mind can't begin with these ways of considering all things, but there are related and similar studies with which the human mind can begin. In its own way, the liberal art of astronomy, and in general the elementary parts of the mathematical science of nature that largely grew out of ancient astronomy, also studies the order of the whole universe, but in a manner much more accessible to us. The order it studies is a mathematical order, a quantitative one. The priority of one natural quantity or of one quantitative natural law to another, for example, and the order of natural things in time and space. Though this order is less profound than the type studied in philosophy, it's still very rich and beautiful, and it's much easier to see and learn than any order in the nobility or purpose of things or in the causes of their being. In practical philosophy, one learns how human reason can order human passions and actions toward the greatest good of man. Because of the difficulty of understanding that order and the nature of the human good, which is the cause of that order, it's best to begin with another study of order in the human passions. One finds this in the liberal art of music, which is a purely mathematical approach to the study of music and is only the more elementary part of it at that. Since music can embody, reflect, imitate, and also provoke various movements of the human soul, the liberal art of music is indirectly a study of intelligible order in human emotions, albeit a study less profound than the explicit study of their rational ordering to human happiness in moral philosophy, and also less profound than the study of music itself in moral and political philosophy. What are some examples now of the ways in which astronomy and music and the quadrivial arts in general prepare the mind for the highest liberal disciplines? I'll give five examples of that. I had something like 30 in one early draft of this, and my father said, no way, Jose, so I took some out. Um, so here you might wish to follow along on part A of the handout. Uh, the first example of how the quadrivium uh, prepares the mind is this. The liberal arts of astronomy and music provide evidence of verifiable and objective order in the universe and in the soul. In the elementary mathematical study of nature and music, we learn, before going on to higher studies of nature and of the human soul, that the universe really is intelligible and ordered as a whole. In going through the major movements of the history of astronomy and physics, for example, one sees that an outmoded theory of the order of the universe does not get replaced by an admission of sheer disorder, lawlessness, but instead by a theory representing a more profound, more beautiful, and more all-embracing order than the one it replaced. 
And if order is thus discovered in the relatively superficial consideration of nature in light of its quantitative aspects, surely the universe will exhibit order when looked at in light of deeper and more substantial things, such as the order of its parts in their various degrees of being, life, intelligence, and goodness. Similarly, in music, if we find numerical order in tones, intervals, chords, scales, melodies, and the like, which things merely evoke and reflect movements of the human soul, surely there must be an intelligible, rational order in the movements of the human soul themselves. In these ways, the liberal arts of astronomy and music can establish a reasoned expectation in the mind of, of the student that the universe and the human soul must be intelligible also in light of non-mathematical considerations, a conviction, in, in other words, that there's really such a thing as natural philosophy or first philosophy or moral philosophy. My second example of how the quadrivium intellectually prepares the mind for higher studies is this. Elementary astronomy and physics convince the attentive student that the quantitative order in the universe is not made by human reason, but only discovered by it. These disciplines, moreover, strongly suggest that the mathematical intelligibility of things is due to some intelligence. Hungarian-American physicist and Nobel Prize winner Eugene Wigner wrote a famous article called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. Indeed, if one assumes the universe does not come forth from any intelligence, especially from an intelligence having the very mathematically inclined human intellect in mind, it's difficult to give any reason why extremely abstract mathematics, originally developed by itself without looking to nature, has so frequently turned out to be somehow embodied in the world around us. Similarly, in the liberal art of music, one can see that the numerical properties of tones, intervals, scales, and the like are only discovered by reason, not established by it and that these numerical properties are somehow rooted in nature itself, both in the nature of sound and in human nature. This natural order must also be respected by reason if it is to construct effective melodies. These facts tend to engender in the minds of students a conviction rooted in experience and rational insight that reason's ordering of human passions themselves, not just of their musical imitations, must also respect a prior natural order. In other words, the mathematical study of music, done well, shows students an intelligible, natural, and objective aesthetic order, despite all the usual relativistic objections concerning beauty. This discovery of mathematical order in sounds that are beautiful and that move the human soul prepares students to discern in some analogous fashion natural and objective standards of moral order. Now a third example, elementary astronomy and physics correct errors in the older science of nature, enabling us to see more clearly what in Aristotle's philosophy of nature was mere theory and what is timeless truth. Much of the philosophy of nature has come down to us from Aristotle and his greatest commentators such as St. Thomas Aquinas. These thinkers, however, predated modern science and consequently labored under many misconceptions about the natural world. They were geocentrists, for example, and held that there were four elements and that the species of living things did not appreciate, appreciably change over time. Learning the basic lessons of modern science puts students in a better position to discern what in the philosophy of, uh, philosophy of Aristotle is philosophical truth and what in it is really a dated attempt to answer questions better addressed by a more mathematical or hypothesis-testing science of nature. Conversely, of course, learning the philosophy of Aristotle puts students in a better position to discern what in modern discourse is truly science and what in it is really just poorly done philosophy far behind the wisdom of Aristotle. And by the way, natural philosophy, Aristotle's natural philosophy, is a much more necessary preparation for metaphysics and uh, sacred theology than, say, modern mathematical physics would be. Now a fourth example of the intellectual preparation provided by the quadrivial arts. Experience of the quadrivial arts exposes the limitations of the quantitative study of nature and the human soul, showing the need for another knowledge of those things. 
Modern physics is so powerful, so all-pervasive, that it's not always easy to see how it's not, in fact, just the whole truth about nature, and many people think it is. There seems to be no part of nature that we can point to that physics cannot explain. But the liberal art of music gives us a clue about how to interpret that. There is no part of a melody that cannot be subjected to numerical analysis. And yet everyone who's learned this sort of analysis sees that it's very far from a complete understanding of a melody. Not only that, the mathematical understanding cannot possibly be the best and deepest understanding of music, since its language is purely numerical and leaves out of its account the goodness or badness of music's effect on human passions, and not just moral effects, aesthetic ones too. Similarly, the art of grammar helps us see that there can be an account of an entire thing without it being the entire account of that thing. Sounds like a tongue twister, I know, but all of Hamlet, for example, is intelligible and inexplicable in light of a grammatical analysis. It's not a part of Hamlet. You can't explain grammatically. But it does not follow that a grammatical understanding of Hamlet is a complete understanding of Hamlet. Okay? A relatively superficial study of music, then, is not only easier because it's relatively superficial, but also beneficial for being so clearly inadequate, since it points the way to a higher, deeper understanding both of music itself and of the human passions it embodies and imitates. As for the remaining quadrivial arts, geometry and arithmetic and other elementary parts of pure mathematics that were developed later, such as analytic geometry and basic calculus, these belong to liberal education as liberal arts in their own right, but also and more so for the sake of the higher quadrivial arts already mentioned. Geometry is ordered to astronomy and physics, in which it is applied in many ways, and arithmetic to music, in which tones, intervals, and scales are found to exhibit numerical properties. Geometry, then, is liberal in itself, but is also ordered to astronomy and physics, which are liberal in themselves, but are also ordered to natural philosophy, which is liberal in itself, but is also ordered to first philosophy or metaphysics. Arithmetic is liberal in itself, but also ordered to music, which is a liberal art in itself, but is also ordered to moral philosophy, which is liberal in itself, but is also ordered to first philosophy. Okay? There's order everywhere. First philosophy, first philosophy and all of theoretical philosophy is in turn ordered to the theological study of God and creation. And moral philosophy is ordered to moral theology. And there you have, in a nutshell, a large part of the order underlying our program of studies here. A fifth example of how the quadrivial arts prepare the mind for higher studies is that mathematics supplies its learners with aids for understanding profound truths in philosophy and theology. Okay, I have to be much briefer on this than I would like to be, but geometry and arithmetic, for instance, supply an abundance of examples, contrasts, precedents, and analogs from which theology teachers can draw when helping students to understand certain truths about God and the angels. Mathematics was used in this way even before Christianity. Plato, for example, employs his famous illustration of, of the divided line, which is a geometrical construction, in order to teach us something about the higher beings, how they're known, how they differ from the beings most familiar to us in sense experience. Moreover, Plato's Socrates is always seeking to grasp the forms of things and to express them in definitions. And our first scientific account, encounter with forms is with the shapes of things in geometry. Tradition has it that Plato had engraved at the entrance to his academy the words, no one ignorant of geometry may enter, like an you know, a, a ancient SAT score or something like that, as if to say that prior to studying the forms of things in philosophy, one must have studied the shapes of things in geometry. One example of how elementary mathematics can assist the teaching and learning of divine truths is the following. A higher angel understands truth by means of more universal concepts than a lower angel can hold in his mind. In other words, a higher angel can know all the same things that a lower, a lower one can know, and more besides, and with fewer thoughts. Now that might sound impossible. How can somebody know more things and know them better while using fewer thoughts? A teacher of theology can help us overcome that difficulty by pointing to something analogous in geometry. 
A geometric figure with a smaller perimeter can hold more area than another figure with a greater perimeter. And that too might sound impossible. Uh, you, you freshmen will be getting into this in book two of Euclid pretty soon. How can a figure with a smaller boundary contain a greater area? Well, compare a one by 30 rectangle and an eight by eight square, and you will see that the square has significantly less perimeter, yet holds significantly more area. The reason is the greater uniformity and simplicity in the way that the square uses its perimeter. Now the words we speak and the thoughts they express are to the truth they contain as the perimeter of a figure is to the area it contains. So just as the lesser perimeter can contain a greater area if it is simpler and more unified, so too fewer words or fewer thoughts can contain more truth if only they are somehow simpler and more unified. Hence the mind that naturally knows all things through fewer thoughts is superior to one that naturally knows all things through more thoughts. And just as the most perfect boundary, namely a circular one, is also the simplest and most uniform, so too the most perfect mind, namely the divine mind, is the simplest and most unified, containing all truth whatsoever in a single thought. So far we've looked at some examples of ways in which mathematics prepares the mind to ascend to higher liberal studies. As I mentioned earlier, however, the quadrivial arts also cultivate dispositions of will and emotion that are in various ways and degrees necessary for making a good beginning in or making good progress in the higher liberal disciplines. So let's move on to some examples of that. First of all, mathematics cultivates a love of the beautiful. One disposition of will and emotion pre prerequisite to higher liberal studies is the love of the beautiful. We all love the sort of beauty we can see with our eyes. But intelligible beauty is a subtler thing, and unless we come to see it and love it, we will not long persevere in the life of the mind. Mathematics cultivates this love and conducts us from the beauty that we see with our eyes to the type that we can grasp, grasp with our imaginations and onto the sort we behold with our intellects. Mathematics is actually driven by the love of the beautiful. That's what makes mathematicians go. When you study Euclid, you might ask yourself why Euclid does not stop in the middle of a proposition somewhere when he's proved a step on the way to his final conclusion. Why not make the middle step itself a final conclusion and call it a theorem? Who made that choice and based on what criteria? Euclid made that choice based partly on pedagogical criteria but also based on what is most beautiful. Mathematics aims to prove beautiful truths about beautiful things by means of beautiful proofs. Accordingly, there are three locations of beauty in mathematics. One is the mathematical things themselves, such as regular polygons inscribed in a circle, exhibiting their admirable exactness and symmetry, which are ingredients or forms of beauty. Another is the truths about such things. For example, the lovely truth that if a regular polygon is inscribed in a circle of unit radius, then the product of all the chords drawn from any one vertex of that polygon to all of the other vertices, you multiply them all together, it's gonna to be equal to the number of sides in the polygon. That's the product. And that's a truth that you're gonna encounter in your senior year, by the way. The third location of beauty is in um, mathematical proofs. Okay, so for example, of the dozens and dozens of different proofs of the Pythagorean theorem, some are laughably long, complicated, difficult, while others are quite economical, delightfully transparent, employ a simple and pretty construction, and clearly bring out the reason for the truth of the conclusion. Like the wise evaluation of poems, myths, epics, and plays, the study of mathematical things is a beautiful study of beautiful things. And the beauty of mathematical things is accessible to our imaginations so that it's easier to appreciate than moral or spiritual beauty. And while literature helps us to see and love moral and spiritual beauty, which are deeper things than the beauties of mathematics, the beauty of mathematical argumentation and problem solving is closer to the beauty of philosophical and theological demonstrations than is the beauty and order of a play. Mathematics strongly encourages another dis uh, disposition necessary to the whole life of the mind, which is a sense of wonder. Wonder is the desire to know a truth that is in itself desirable to know. Without wonder, we would have interest only in truths about how to live, how to make a living, how to acquire the necessities and pleasures of life. 
Truths that perfected the human mind but did not equip us for doing, acquiring, and making things would be completely neglected. There would be no philosophizing, no theoretical science. In Plato's Republic, Socrates remarks to Glaucon that the eye of the soul is purified and kindled afresh by mathematical studies when it's been destroyed and blinded by our ordinary pursuits. It rouses and restores our wonder. What's the appetite? How does mathematics provoke our wonder? Well, unlike logic, it's about things worth knowing in themselves, wonderful things, and it's accessible to our imagination as opposed to the logical things, right, the arguments and the like. So we readily wonder about them. So, for example, if you take a look, uh, if you would, at figure one on the handout, you're looking there at a large circle in which six other circles have been drawn internally tangent to it at A, B, C, D, E, and F. And those circles are also externally tangent to each other. Okay, they're all kissing each other inside there. Apart from that, they can be of whatever size you please. I drew them quite randomly, I assure you. If you now join A, D, B, E, C, F, the points of contact, these straight lines must all meet at a single point, as you see in figure two. It always works, but why? How strange, how unexpected. Mathematics is filled with things of that sort. All right, so that's wonder. Another disposition of will and emotion that mathematics fosters is intellectual hope. We live in a postmodern age characterized even defined by a loss of confidence in reason's ability to answer any great questions about morality, about the human soul, about God. It is as if the would-be philosophers of our time, having studied so many conflicting philosophers and philosophies, and having seen that none has stood triumphant over the rest, have decided that philosophy is just words or word games and mind games, not wisdom, and that arguments cannot get to the truth of things, but can only serve to manipulate others. That's the condition Socrates warns his friends about on the day of his death, after they begin to fall into despair of ever finding good arguments for the immortality of soul. Given the difficulty of knowing such things, we could easily become skeptics about them, simply by living and breathing in the academic and intellectual climate of our time. All too often, the result of higher education is moral and intellectual relativism, the belief that all beliefs about the greatest questions are created equal, since none is really knowable or has any truth founded in a reality common to us all. If then, we are to learn any science higher than modern science, if we're to take philosophy and theology seriously, we must find a way to counteract this powerful current of skepticism in our teaching and learning. We must find ways to encourage the hope of obtaining satisfying, reasonable answers to our great questions. Mathematics fosters such hope by showing us we can obtain sure proof of non-trivial truths, and it fosters hope right from the start. Euclidean geometry is very certain, clean, exact, orderly, and non-trivial. In particular, an education in philosophy cannot ignore modern philosophers. But one is more liable to fall into despair when reading them at length if mathematics, the clearest success of reason, has become a distant memory or has only been superficially experienced. Of course, it's possible to go too far in one's confidence in reason, and especially in one's confidence in one's own reason. Mathematics helps with that, too. It imbues us with a healthy fear of mistakes. Mathematics helps develop a sense of just how provably, definitive, definitively, objectively wrong we can be, and how surprisingly often. It shows us that there are many different ways we can overlook something important, and how a tiny mistake can lead to a great number of enormous mistakes when it's carried into subsequent reasoning. Mathematics teaches us to become aware of how prone we are to making mistakes and does so without robbing us of our confidence that we can find the truth. How healthy that is and how necessary for learning the higher disciplines. When pursuing them, we all too easily believe we've apprehended the truth when we have not, precisely because the truth in higher disciplines is so difficult that it's hard for us even to see when we've missed it. We tend to think mathematics excels in catching us out in mistakes because it's the hardest of all subjects. That is quite wrong. 
Advanced mathematics is, of course, extremely hard indeed, and most of the mathematics in which today's mathematicians are engaged is too involved for most of us to ever understand. But elementary mathematics, relative to the rest of science and philosophy, is quite easy, is eminently learnable, which is why the Greek word for the one who's fond of learning, a mathematikos, became the word for a mathematician in particular. Mathematics can and ought to encourage a certain fear of error in us and a certain humility, too. Both of these dispositions are even more necessary in the higher sciences. If we're capable of failing to notice our own errors when we're talking about relatively superficial things like numbers and triangles, which things we can imagine and draw, how much more susceptible to undetected error must we be in sciences that talk about invisible and unimaginable things? Now, I say that math can and ought to promote humility and a healthy fear of error, not that it does so infallibly. There are some in whom it might tend to have the opposite effect, namely those of us who are, so to speak, too good at math for their own good. In the case of such souls who rarely make mathematical mistakes and can, can conceal the ones that they do make, there may be a danger that they'll come to think of themselves as a species apart in need of no assistance in learning the truth. But I think that's a, a real and ob objective danger only for great world geniuses of mathematics. God bless them. For anybody inferior to them, for example, I would say any one of us in this room, a remedy for mathematical arrogance is readily available, namely our manifest inferiority to the mathematical geniuses in the world, which should be all the clearer to us the better we understand mathematics. If you are quicker on the uptake than your fellow students in learning from Newton and Einstein, and you're tempted to be impressed with yourself, then look up for just a moment and see, towering above you, Newton and Einstein, and all the other geniuses from whom you're learning. You should notice your dependence on and inferiority to the intelligence of, uh, of others. Which brings me to my next point. Learning mathematics can and should foster a willingness to learn from others. A natural consequence of humility is docility or teachability, a readiness to learn from others wiser than ourselves. In imitation of Hesiod's division of the human race with respect to intelligence, I can divide all of mathematics with respect to my own intelligence as follows. First, there's the mathematics that I can figure out by myself. Second, there's what I can't figure out by myself, but can understand when someone else explains it to me. Third, there's what I cannot understand even when someone else explains it to me. <laughs> By far, the largest of those three categories is the last. The next largest category is the second, the one containing those parts of mathematics that I could never in a million years have figured out for myself, but which I could learn in a fairly short time from those intelligent enough to have discovered them for themselves. When I see myself so dependent on Euclid, Euler, Gauss, Cantor, Gödel, and countless others in order to come to understand so many beautiful things, I'm apt to draw certain conclusions about myself. I'm inclined to a truer assessment of my own ability and knowledge than I would have been without, without having seen how much insight I gained from their teaching, which insight I could never have gotten without them. Now, if I absolutely need such teachers in order to learn mathematics, in which I'm learning about relatively superficial things, such as numbers and triangles, which things I can imagine, how much more must I rely on great geniuses in order to learn sciences about things I cannot imagine? Similarly, if I find I need subtle distinctions and long, complicated, difficult arguments involving many steps and stages in order to learn the deeper truths of mathematics or physics, how much more will I need such things in order to see the deeper truths of philosophy? Another necessary predisposition for learning the higher sciences is expecting the unexpected, an openness to counterintuitive truths. That disposition is important, since otherwise our minds will be closed off to the highest and deepest truths, many of which run contrary to what we initially expect or even think to be possible. It's especially important in our program here at this college to provide some experience of counterintuitive, seemingly impossible truths since we lay so much stress on the importance of common experience and self-evident truths. We do this because common experience and self-evident principles are the soil out of which the most general parts of natural philosophy grow. 
and one must learn some of those parts of natural philosophy before one can go on to metaphysics and theology, uh, which, by the way, metaphysics also springs up from self-evident principles, even as mathematics does. So we have to stress that in the program, self-evident principles. Moreover, modern science, which dominates most people's understanding of intellectual life, is characterized more by its use of testable hypotheses than by its use of self-evident truths, and more by its use of highly specialized forms of experience than by its use of the types of experience common to us all. And modern philosophy, as opposed to modern science here, modern philosophy often unjustly denigrates the use of common experience and of self-evident truths, or even denies that there are such things. For these reasons, then, in this program, we lay special stress on the importance and the certainty of common experience and of self-evident truths. But one can overestimate the power of common experience and of self-evident truths to settle our questions or else overestimate our ability to recognize the true data of common experience and the truly self-evident things and to tell these apart from the hasty assumptions we naturally make about things. To become liberally educated, we need to learn to strike a certain balance, to see on the one hand that common experience and self-evident truths alone suffice for answering some but not all important questions, and to see, on the other hand, that many things seem like matters of common experience or seem like self-evident truths, but really they're nothing of the sort. Now, here's a little example of what I mean, a nice mathematical one. In relativity theory, we learn the shocking, counterintuitive truth that velocities do not add up the way we normally think they do. Suppose you're standing in an airport terminal, watching me walk on one of those moving walkways. If the walkway is moving past you at 10 miles per hour, and I'm walking in that same direction at 3 miles per hour relative to the moving sidewalk, how fast am I moving relative to you? Our intuitive answer is 13 miles per hour. But that's wrong. It's not very wrong, but it's still wrong. Now, we're not going to worry tonight about why that's wrong, but it is wrong. So that's one extremely counterintuitive truth that we come across in physics where there's very little possibility of our dismissing the whole theory as nonsense since it's so clearly demonstrated from facts of experience. Not ordinary experience, however. Counterintuitive truths of this sort, learned in the mathematical disciplines, set an important precedent for higher studies. If we can think that an incorrect way of adding velocities is the self-evidently correct way, then all the more will we be capable of thinking that a false or impossible way of understanding invisible or unimaginable things is a self-evidently true understanding of them. For example, it seems self-evident that if two things are the same as each other, or, or sorry, if two things are the same as some third thing, then they have to be the same as each other. Now, God the Father and God the Son are each the same as a third thing, the one true God, a third thing I can mention anyway. Therefore, it seems that God the Father is the same as God the Son. They're both the same as the one true God, right? So they have to be the same as each other. And so these are not two different divine persons, but one and the same person under different names. Okay, that conclusion is, of course, contrary to Christian truth. It's a heresy that has a name. But it also seems to follow quite readily from an apparently self-evident statement, together with the Christian truth that there's only one God. We are better prepared to discover the subtle fallacy involved in this would-be refutation of the Trinity after having seen in mathematical physics subtle fallacies such as the calculation that says I should be moving past you at 13 miles per hour. The precedent in physics puts us on notice for similar things in theology. Perhaps now both the meaning and truth of my answer to our original question have become plain. Why and to what extent should liberal education include mathematics? First, any liberal education program meant to offer a first look at the whole of liberal education, or sorry, at the whole of liberal learning, must include some mathematical disciplines, such as those making up the quadrivium, just because they are, in fact, liberal disciplines. Second, a program of liberal education aiming to provide a first look at the principal doctrines of theology and philosophy must include some exposure to the quadrivium because of the way those lower disciplines studying the order in the universe and in the human soul in a quantitative and accessible manner prepare students' minds and wills for a deeper and more difficult understanding of the universe and the human soul in natural philosophy, first philosophy, practical philosophy, and theology. 
Third, a program of liberal education proposing to teach a fair amount of natural philosophy, as ours does, both for the intrinsic worth of that science and to pave the way to metaphysics and to a more fruitful study of certain parts of theology, must also include some amount of relatively modern mathematics and physics. This is profitable and even necessary for a few reasons. First, the great master of the philosophy of nature of the first and most general parts of the science of nature is Aristotle, and so we must turn to him to learn those parts of natural science. And yet Aristotle is to some extent mixed into, has, has to some extent mixed into his general study of nature the theories of his day concerning the stars and the elements. As a corrective for these deficiencies in his understanding of nature and in order to bring into sharper relief the timeless elements of his doctrine, one must look to more recent accomplishments of science, which in turn requires an upgrade in our mathematical toolbox. A second reason it's necessary to study some modern mathematics and physics alongside Aristotle's philosophy of nature is to maintain a certain balance in one's understanding of how to study nature. With Aristotle, we see the great power of ordinary experience and self-evident truths in the study of nature, but not so much their limitations. Whereas with modern science, we get the complementary view of the great power of studying nature through testable hypotheses and extremely special forms of experience and the application of mathematics. My brief sampling of these ways in which mathematical sciences assist the learning and teaching of superior sciences should not be taken to be exhaustive, but I hope that it was representative and to some extent persuasive. And I hope too that you enjoy and profit from the tiny slivers of mathematics that we study here and that they bring joy and light to your mind. Thank you.